You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to the Ops and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Pray. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And for you non-subscribers of DuckTerritory.com, make sure to go onto the site, check us out. We've got some promotions running, and depending on when you listen to this, you could maybe get advantage, uh, take advantage of 50% off an annual VIP membership that lasts through Monday, and then it goes away. Uh, it's a promo we're running for the start of spring football. We're going to talk about spring football. We're going to talk about the women's run through Vegas. We're going to talk about the men who are gearing up for their own. Uh, lots to get to on this Monday edition of the Odds and Audibles podcast, and Eric Scopel is with me. As always, I'm Matt Prem. Thank you for listening. Uh, Eric, let, let's dive right into this. Um, we've got a lot to cover on this Monday show. Football is here. Football will have three practices this week. Uh, we've already seen two pads go on during this week. Um, it, it's an exciting time because, quite honestly, like there's a new coach. We have a new offensive coordinator that's talking about some changes with the quarterback position. We are watching position battles play out. There's a ton of stuff going on right now at the football program. No kidding. And these, this first, uh, I guess, two practices this past week have uh, been pretty eye-opening in terms of I think we've learned a lot both by watching practice and then I thought the time spent with both uh, offensive coordinator Joe Moorhead and defensive coordinator Andy Avalos on Saturday, I thought we learned quite a bit. I thought they, they kind of, of course, it's spring ball and we're still months away from the first games of the season, but I feel like we came away going like, okay, there's some differences that are pretty imp- right. imp- apparent, apparent and things that we're going to be talking about on this podcast that, quite frankly, I don't know if I expected at least one of them, uh, the coach, to be quite as upfront about. So uh, certainly some stuff to talk about. I think pretty exciting to have football back along with a very, very busy uh, men's and women's basketball weekend. There's a lot, a lot going on right now for Oregon sports. Oh, and there's recruiting too. Oh, that's right. There was like 120 120- – recruits here on uh, over the weekend for junior day. So yeah, there's a lot going on right now. <laughs> um, let's, let's dive right into that real quick. Um, from a junior day perspective, we're flying off the cuff cause that's what we do. We don't, we, we discuss what we're going to talk about and then we just deviate away from it. Um, <laughs> so what we do best. Uh, this weekend so far, no commits have happened. I don't know if that's necessarily a, a surprise to me. I think this junior day event was all about, preparing, laying the groundwork, laying the foundation for those verbal commitments that are going to happen in a couple weeks, in a couple months, when guys come back either for the spring game or they take an official visit in the summer uh, or they they come in for Saturday Night Live in late July just before the start of their football season. Um, this was a weekend in which Oregon had, like Eric said, Probably closer to 200, 250 prospects roll through Eugene. And quite honestly, to see just the evolution of where Oregon is at from a recruiting standpoint and the ability to convince players to roll through at that large of a scale all on the same weekend, it was, it started on Friday and it rolled through Sunday when multiple groups came through. Um, it's pretty impressive because if you if you had told me ten years ago in 2010 that Oregon would be doing what they do right now with having 200 250 prospects roll through a weekend in the middle or the early part of March, 
I would say there's no way. And it, that of alone, that alone is is pretty impressive to see. And now the quality of the player is also impressive because yeah, there, there were guys that, that that came through that weren't necessarily guys Oregon's going to offer. But for the most part, every player that here was someone that Oregon was looking at from a, as a junior who's going to be a senior next fall that that has an offer that's a five star recruit. To a guy that's going into his, his, he will be a sophomore next season, and he doesn't have any offers, and it's building that relationship and building that that bond and, and starting that process with that guy. It, it was pretty cool to see so many guys on campus. No question, and, and at Saturday's open practice, the you know typically we were in the Shmoshovsky Center, and typically there's a lot of room on the sideline to walk to watch practice, and there were I don't know what what, what the estimate is. 70, maybe 80 recruits there kind of covering the sideline. and uh, well, more than that. I don't know, Matt. I'm bad at estimating numbers apparently, but there were a lot there. <laughs> um, and and it, I certainly felt it in terms of trying to like, not, not that they were in the way or anything, but certainly it was it was a different atmosphere than, than what we saw on, on Thursday when there weren't, uh, you know, 80 to whatever number you want to estimate, 100, 100 plus uh, recruits standing on the sideline. Cool to see it, and you're right, uh, in terms of like, you know, you're looking around and you're, I'm, I'm recognizing faces going like, okay, wow, there's this top 50 recruit. Oh, here's this 2022 kid that we've been talking about. So it is, it is a big thing. And you're right. Getting these players on campus as early as possible, even if it doesn't result in commitments, uh, it is significant for building relationships down the line and just building that hype and that buzz of having all these seven on seven teams here together of having, uh, you know, teammates of guys that are close friends being able to experience this as a group as opposed to, uh, individually, I always think those type of situations also pay dividends. So I think, uh, like you said, the results so far, it doesn't sound like any verbal commitments, but certainly some positive things to take away from. And we should say, uh, yourself, Kevin, uh, Steve Wolfong and the 24-7 National team have done a great job of, of connecting with these recruits afterwards. We've got a lot of updates up on the site and on Sunday. It seemed like every 15 minutes I was looking up and there was another VIP article on the site. And that's another one of those things where if you're not a VIP subscriber, uh, and you want to learn about some of this recruiting information, uh, go ahead and sign up. This is a great time with that 50% off deal, and you can read all of the work from our great recruiting team on the site. Now, from a football perspective, there's a lot to digest here. And I, we could go in any different ways. We could talk about Avalos and kind of his theories and thoughts on, on the defense and what growth they're going to take in year two. We could start with what Cristobal has said about the loss of Jovan Boatnight. Um, I think it, it was interesting. It wasn't – that that was – let's start there. That was described as a, agreeing to go on different ways. Mm-hmm. So to me that tells me Oregon kind of wanted to get away with, from Jovan Boatnight as much as he wanted to go and find another job. So maybe this is a mutual parting of ways in which – Neither side was very, I don't know if happy is the right word, but neither side was okay with where things were going, and they agreed to just have a clean break, which is pretty interesting to me, especially one day into spring football. I was going to say, the timing of it, regardless of if it was mutual or one of the parties was, you know, maybe more, uh, I guess, heavy-handed in the decision-making process, is interesting and, and really just not ideal. I mean, you, you don't want to get into spring practice and, and have a coaching change. At the same time, uh, we should note that they're going to, you know, still run through practice. It's not like things change drastically, and they're going to have to 
you know, go find a coach here. Uh, we should note that Jonathan Krause, a graduate assistant, was uh, leading the wide receivers group this week, and I think uh, it, I'm, I'm assuming he'll probably continue that job until a hire is made. I'm assuming I think that's pretty clear. Um, but yeah, this is significant, and you're right. The fact that maybe this was mutual, you kind of wonder what those conversations were. Uh, could it be something to do with the, the fact that Oregon's recruiting of wide receivers really just wasn't going very well this past cycle? You know, they brought in Bo Knight this past year after Michael Johnson left to Mississippi State, and Oregon signs one wide receiver recruit. They had a big-time flip on signing day to Arizona State in Johnny Wilson, and they didn't sign anybody else in the spring. Um, and I think there's a lot of factors probably for, for some of those misses, but part of me wonders if, hey, like, was was Bo Knight's inability to, to bring in as much talent as he wanted in this, in this previous recruiting cycle at least playing a part in some of this stuff that took place because I thought that was pretty apparent. You know, Oregon needed to add, I would say, at least one more receiver during the yep. second spring signing period, and they didn't. They had a couple of guys they brought in. They offered a bunch of people, uh, and, and ultimately it didn't render the required results. And Oregon, I still think, having watched now a couple of days of spring practice, it's a deep group, and we'll probably talk about that, if not today, in, in future podcasts. But there's a lot of good players or some good bo- some new bodies. They, they certainly turn heads, but at the same time, I, I'm sure uh, they would love to have one or two extra guys either here now or uh, joining the team in the summer. I, I this is a unique opportunity for Kraus because he's the only one that's going to be a candidate that has on-field training with Cristobal as they're evaluating the options. I mean, that's pretty remarkable to be able to go out and say that you know, he he's going to have a chance to to go through the the the, the routine, go through the meetings, go through the game plan, you know, the practice planning, go through the Film review with the, with the coaches and the players and all of that. And it's everything he does is basically a job interview. And so yep. I, I don't know if Jonathan Krause is going to be the leader in the clubhouse, but look, this is all about positioning yourself for future moves. And Oregon posted the positional hiring job posting on the school website a day or so before boat night's mutual separation. Uh, we've been tracking boat night for about a week and a half, two weeks of him maybe being gone. We didn't really want to put it out there on the board because it's just, we didn't feel comfortable of it being ethically just right. But that's because we couldn't get more than one source on it, but we'd, we'd heard some smoke around this. So Oregon's not very, I don't think they were very taken back by it. Um, but they're prepared. They've got a, they've got a list of names that they're looking at. And it wouldn't surprise me if in the next two weeks, that's when the hire is made. Get through this week of spring football. Let Jonathan Krause kind of have a walkthrough of what they're going to do. And then when you, when the players are on, on break for finals and in spring break, you have an opportunity to really just hunker down and make your, your job interviews and make your hire. I was going to say, Matt. If you were a betting man, which I know you are, but not necessarily <laughs> on, this, on this particular subject, if you're a betting man, does Oregon have a new full-time wide receivers coach when they reconvene on, I think, yes. March 31st? Do you think so? Okay, I think so, too. I think they're going to get this dealt with and get this done before the second half of spring, and they and they owe it to the wide receiver room to at least have some finality there for the second part of spring. I think it would be disappointing to go through all 15 spring practices, or I guess 14 out of 15, because Bowen Knight was technically there for day one, but... Uh, without a full-time wide receivers coach. I think that would be a disservice to a wide receiver group, which, like I said, a lot of talent there, but certainly needs, uh, you know, 
some guidance from whoever is leading this group long term. I think Cristobal noted that, you know, they need a guy that's smart, a guy that's got experience. They need a guy that that's going to bring ideas to the room. But I, I think most importantly, this is a position that you got to recruit. Yep. You absolutely have to be able to recruit. And Boat Knight helped go out and, and, and sign a guy in Chris Hudson. But I, I really wonder how much did the loss of yeah. Johnny Wilson play into this just because of, you know, the, the impact it had. Like Oregon has Devin Williams. They have Brian Addison. But you were kind of hoping to get another one of those six foot five type guys. So you'd have three or four of them instead of two. Uh, two or three on the roster and, and this year's West Coast recruiting crop at the receiver position is absolutely stacked. So you have to be able to have success on the recruiting trail. And I think that, I wonder how, how much of a factor that played into things, uh, in terms of Oregon maybe being okay to mutually part ways. All right. Now we also got some interesting comments from Joe Moorhead, Oregon's new offensive coordinator about the position that, you know, that he's going to be working primarily with, and, and that's quarterback. No kidding. I, I was, uh, a little, I don't want to say I was stumped, but I was surprised with the detail he went into, and, and I honestly, it was encouraging to just kind of get him, you know, him to be so upfront, but, you know, he was asked about running the quarterback, and this was, if you're a Oregon football fan, you probably have seen this now, but Oregon, Oregon football fans have been wanting Oregon to run the football with its quarterback for a while now, back through obviously last season, and Moorhead was asked about it, and he said, we're planning to run the quarterback and make him a viable threat because when he does, that's an extra number in the run game for the defense to defend. Uh, later he said, to me, maybe 10 times a game, and that could go up or down in terms of the number of times they would run a quarterback. Uh, that's extremely significant. That's one of those things that you see come across uh, on social media or, or wherever you're getting your news and you're an Oregon fan, you're like, oh wow, like that's, that's a big spring development. So, uh, I, I think, I think that's pretty telling in terms of what they're trying to do. And we should say on Saturday, we watched them for one of their positional periods practicing option pitches out of the pistol between quarterbacks and running backs. I can't think of really the last time we've seen Oregon run the option, probably since maybe Willie Taggart's year. Yeah. Maybe, and that was pretty infrequent. And then obviously, you know, quite frequently prior to that with Marcus Mariota under Mark Helfrich and, and that staff. But uh, I think we're going to see a, a little bit of a transition offensively. And I think hearing Moorhead come out and say these things uh, is a pretty clear indication of that. Yeah, I love I love the idea. And, and one thing that I, I think needs to kind of be just hammered home is and. I'm, I'm assuming I'm gonna base, base this off an assumption just because of every other interview Joe Moorhead has done since he's been as, uh, hired as the, as the offensive coordinator at Oregon. And that I've tried to make it a point to listen to everything he's talked about just because he's not been available all that often. Yeah. Um, but I, one thing I have taken away from previous interviews is when he's talked about when the quarterback runs the football at other stops, he's said that it's, Whatever number he throws out, 10, 15, 24, 24 has been a popular number based off of the time at Mississippi State. He said those are designed plays where the, where the quarterback could run the football, not a, a, a simple run. That's what he said at, at, at practice on Saturday was they're not going to just run the football 25 times with quarterback power to the left side of the offensive line. <laughs> right. it, 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 it's going to be 10 plays in which 
maybe three or four of those result in the quarterback making the correct read and keeping the, the ball on the option to run the ball. And those other seven, maybe it's an RPO or, and he throws, throws it a couple times or he pitches it or he hands it off. Um, that's, I think that the, the key thing here is that Oregon is going to have about 10 plays in which Oregon is going to ask the quarterback to make a read in which one of those reads is, does he keep the football? And, and Moorhead did say there's, there's a checklist. Touchdown, first down, get down. And if you can, if you feel like you can score, run the football and score the touchdown. If you feel like you can get the first down, do anything and you, and you, and the team needs the first down. That's the thing that was really important was if it's second and, and six, don't give up your body to get a first down because you still have an opportunity. But if it's third and three and you have a chance to get the football, the first down, do anything in your power to get the first down. That's what he said. And if, if either of those options aren't on the table at the first opportunity of positive yards and you're going to get hit, Get down so you don't take contact. And I, and I followed up because one of the things he did say was that the decision to run the quarterback would be personnel driven. I was curious what he saw out of his group of quarterbacks, and he said he thought Tyler Shuck is probably quicker than fast. And then this is the rest of the quote. He's a guy who can make plays by design or by improv- improvisation. So are the other guys. Tyler can definitely be a threat with his feet. So um, a little bit of indication there on what he sees from his quarterbacks. Obviously, it's hard to project. I think one of the things he said when he was speaking with media is that Thursday's spring practice was like the first time he'd seen most of these guys throw a football, Um, you know, outside of watching uh, practice film from the past and and the spring game and things like that. I mean, he hadn't had a chance to see these guys do much. So he's still getting familiar as well with with the personnel and what he has. But early indications from him, at least, are are that Shuck and, and the rest of the quarterbacks uh, would be equipped to run the football uh, as needed. All right. Now, there's we've had two practices, and quite honestly, we, we've we've been able to to see a ton uh, of the of these teams practice and been able to pull away some pretty good impressions. And we also want to note that they haven't been in pads. And so for me, uh, next time I see this team, they're probably going to be in pads in in about three weeks, four weeks, because I'll be leaving for the Pac-12 tournament and then wherever the men go next week, you're going to be in town and you and Kevin are going to be seeing this team in pads quicker than I will. So I'm going to be really curious to see what your impressions are once pads go on. But two days in, I think there's a couple things that have been pretty evident. We've got three things, each of us that were pretty impressed with from the first two days of spring ball. I'll start, start off. And this one has nothing to do with, with, any one player in particular, but more so just the entire group of the team. The fourth quarter program, this is the, I think, third year they've gone through the fourth quarter program now. It's paying dividends that I don't oh, think yeah. I could have ever imagined because this team is humongous in terms of how much bigger they've gotten, how much leaner they've gotten, how much stronger, faster, quicker, whatever word you want to use they have improved. I mean, guys like Kayvon Thibodeau, he didn't look like a freshman last year, but he looks now like a senior would look. I mean, he is humongous. He's packed on the weight. Two guys that are in the same kind of area as him on the, on the defense that have redshirted last year that were freshmen didn't play. Trevin Maiai and uh, Isaac Townsend, those two guys have reshaped their bodies and have put on a ton of pounds. I think I think Trevin had the second most uh, weight put on of all players this offseason. I think it was 20 pounds. Both those guys 
came in as freshmen pretty lean and now have the first guy off the bus type look to them in terms of what they've done with their bodies. And Avalos talked a lot about the potential that those guys have to make an impact on this year's defense just because of the, the, the improvements and the skills that they've made in, in the weight room and the agility room. And then the offensive line. I mean, like, I understand that there's a lot of new faces out there, but this is a chance for us to see these guys without pads on and, and really see how much their bodies have changed. And I think those guys have gotten bigger and leaner too. And, and so, uh, really impressed with what they've been able to do in the, in the fourth quarter program, in the weight room and the, and the agility stuff, because it's starting to pay off and this team is starting to really just change the way that they just simply look on the football field. Yeah, let's, uh, let, I'll, we'll just share this first one because that was, we don't coordinate what we're going to talk about, but that was exactly where I was going to start. And <laughs> ironically enough, it was going to be about Trevin Maia and Isaac Townsend and, and a lot of the guys. I mean, uh, our I think I should also mention Sean Dollars. He looks very yeah, fast. He looks fast. He looks leaned out. But like, you know, one of the things is we've, we've had the opportunity to get there before practice and we watch these guys on their kind of procession from the locker room over to the Mashofsky Center. And you're right. Like every single guy, you're like, holy crap. I mean, I, I literally confused Trevin my eye with Sam Putasi, who's an offensive lineman, because I was like, "There's no way that's the kid who arrived here last year who looked, you know, kind of like a, you know, a, a string bean." I mean, he was not. I mean, and I, that's an exaggeration. He was putting it together. You'd say that was a football player, but you didn't look at him and go like, "He's ready to play." And now we look at him and he's like, he looks like he could play left tackle or something. And that's also maybe an exaggeration because I think he's only about 260 pounds, but he looks the part. Townsend looks the part. Those guys are going to be called upon to play bigger roles this year. They're both with the second team defense um, in the first two practices at, at edge spots. So um, significant developments there. And you're right. It's not just at a certain spot here or there. You watch TJ Bass move around and it's like, holy crap, that dude's huge. You watch a lot of these newcomers moving around and you're like, man, they're just some big guys. And then you've got, like you said, other players uh, moving around uh, that you're just – Kayvon Thibodeau especially, yeah, that's a guy who clearly put on some weight and has, has made that a, a an important part of his offseason. So that is a significant thing. I, I will also share that one in terms of like, yeah, like I think Aaron Feld, there were some questions about whether or not he was going to remain with the, the staff. Seeing again, once again, the, the results that he's been able to, to bring out of this group, it stands out, it's impressive and, and certainly notable and, and a thing that I also share with you in terms of like that was something that I looked at and went, man. Um, my second thing, I think, I think the wide receivers just athletically look different than they did last year. And I know uh, Jalen Red has been kind of slowed because he's got it looks like a, his hands his right hand is in a cast, so it looks like some some time there before he's full go again. And there are a couple of other guys. I think Jared Waters, Lance Wilhoit, still like not full participants, but Devin Williams is going to be a dude. And Brian Addison looks the m- much more comfortable, looks a lot more confident in his body. Looks like he's put on some weight. Um, he's definitely filled out. He's looked good on the outside, and they've now got two six four, six foot five outside receivers that, at least watching them, you know, run routes and catch on air, are physically impressive. Um, uh, and and then you've got Johnny Johnson working a little bit at the slot now that Jalen Red uh, is injured, and he's looked good there. I think that wide receiver position group. We haven't talked about it a ton on the website, but uh, I've been really impressed with what we've seen from that group. I know there's still. Uh, you know, a lot of things to determine in terms of who's going to be, you know, what the, what the hierarchy, the rotation looks like. But I think first couple of days in, you feel pretty good about what you've seen there. And this is funny because, like Eric said, we 
we do we purposely do not compare notes on this that way if we have an instance like today it really hammers home some things that are sticking out because my second one was the receivers and just how tall how long how lean <coughs> how impressive looking Oregon's receiver core looks and Devin Williams and um Brian Addison in particular are are two guys that we've talked at at length. I mean, how many how many times have we done on this podcast a segment about the receivers needing size in the recruiting front? And in all intents and purposes, Devin Williams and Brian Addison have everything that they need to have big plays, big big moments. Uh, Joe Moorhead kind of you got that he had that look in his eye when a reporter brought up Devin Williams playing in the X spot in place of. Uh, in, 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 in place of, um, I'm forgetting his name, uh, Juwan Johnson. Yeah. Uh, and Moorhead just kind of lit up. It was like, oh yeah, that, that's, that's going to be a guy. He's going to, he's going to be the ex. He, he has everything that we want to play that position. I think Devin Williams is, uh, he's running with the first team through the first two days and it's spring fall and it's a long ways away. There's going to be a ton of competition, but I think it's pretty evident that Devin has an opportunity to make a huge impact on this program right away being eligible this season. It's going to be a big addition for him. Now, my last impression for me, and I kind of have a a sneaking suspicion that yours is going to be centered around the same thing. I'm really just intrigued at the defensive backs that Oregon has because they're, they're, we're seeing the rotation. We're seeing some experimentation. We're, I mean, they have Thomas Graham, who is a three-year starter, Oregon's most consistent cornerback the last three seasons, uh, working with the safety group. Now, he did bounce back a little bit more in the second practice with the cornerbacks, and Andy Avalos said it's just, you know, getting guys into, into unique spots and seeing if they can play certain players in certain roles and crystal ball came out and said, you know, they, they face a ton of different styles of offense. And so they're just going through the, the, the game at here of, of who can do what and be prepared for anything. But they wouldn't do this if they didn't feel like they not only had a viable starter behind Thomas Graham, which would be sophomore Michael Wright. They also would not make this kind of a move if they weren't confident in the other two or three guys behind Michael Wright. Because if you're going to have your most consistent cornerback last three years start trying new positions, and and look, it, it might not be a case in which Thomas Graham plays or starts a single game at at the safety spot, but it, it, they maybe they use it 25% of the game, uh, week in and week out. But they wouldn't go down this path if they didn't have ultimate confidence in the guys behind Michael Wright to have the depth to, to be able to even just discuss this kind of a move. Yeah, and I think the thing that stood out that Avalos explained after we asked about the Graham move was that they're trying to kind of mimic what they did a year ago in the front seven where you would see them go from a – one possession against a certain team, it might be a, a 3-3-5. The next possession, right. maybe they're in a 4-3 or a 3-4, and the, they're moving around and they're constantly switching personnel. They're trying to do something very similar in the secondary, and Graham playing at a different position is kind of that first example of trying to cross-train these players in a way that provides them, uh, I guess, the most versatility, uh, the, the ability to be most creative down the line, Um 
Avalos was even asked about the possibility of playing like eight to ten defensive backs at once, and I just want to say before I even get into that, I don't expect you're ever going to see ten defensive backs on the field at once, but who knows, maybe not. Um, and he didn't like shut down the idea of seeing a crazy number of defensive backs out there just because certain matchups may present themselves where that's the best plan of attack. So uh, you're starting to see that, and he said he wants to be more, like he said, more versatile, more multiple in the back end. I think that's another thing that certainly sticks sticks out to me. Um, and, and just like the safety rotation uh, currently, the fact that you've got a guy like Nick Pickett, who through the first couple of days of practice has been with the second team. You've got Verone McKinley and Brady Breeze with the ones. You've got Bennett Williams, a newcomer, also with the twos. Uh, there, There's four really, really good safeties right there that are very, very capable. And that that's going to be, I think, an incredible competition battle. And then you toss in the fact that, like, okay, you've got – a Javon Holland, who's a great nickelback. You also have a Thomas Graham, who's trying to work there. Who's also maybe Graham's going to look a little bit at safety in the interim. I don't. I think you know. Ultimately, I expect Graham will probably end up back starting at corner. But there is so much talent. There is so much versatility. There is. Uh, this is a group that is very, very exciting, and you can tell Andy Avalos is, is sharing in that excitement in terms of like, man, we are going to have some dudes this year, and it's going to be fun to mix and match and figure out kind of how this all fits together. I think he sees it as a as a puzzle, and he knows he has all the pieces. Now it's just a matter of arranging it on the table. I think now that we've talked about it, and we've, I've kind of gone over my notes again a second and third time of what we were going to discuss from impressions, I just – maybe I want to revise this, but maybe the overall – idea for me for the first two days of spring ball is how far this program has come from the 2017 season from a depth perspective because I remember going into that 2017 season it was like oh boy this team cannot sustain any kind of injury to basically anyone out there because if any of their starters go down or if any of their starters have to come out of the game because they're tired the drop-off is significant and then in 2018, it got a little bit better. Obviously, last year it improved significantly. But I, I, I look at across the board and the positions and the guys that are, are in the second and third team, and I would tell myself some of these guys would start on the 2017 team, on the 2016 team. The, the, the revamping of the roster and the improved depth of the roster in three to four years is pretty remarkable, and it's why I think – Yes, they have superstars in the starting lineup, but I think the depth and the improved depth that Oregon has is why this team is going to be viewed as one of the 10 best teams in the country next season because the drop-off from one to two is not as as not as not wide as it used to be. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, and that depth does stand out. Uh, you watch them run through the second-team defense, and sure, there might be an experience there, but each guy that's out there, you can tell physically has the tools to – to be capable, to to contribute, and you're right. I don't think that's a thing we could say a couple of years ago. I think we started seeing that develop last year. This year it feels even a little bit more impressive than that. Like, we should note, like, there are players not at practice still. Like, like there are a handful of defensive guys that have been sick all, all week, uh, a couple of defensive linemen, safe defensive backs, and yet they're still two, three deep with high-quality scholarship caliber athletes, and that's not something that you could have said in the past. There's no doubt about it. This is a different group, and I think defensively in particular, 
you feel that way. But even on offense, like we said earlier, like at wide receiver, boy, they have a ton of guys. Like tight end, which isn't going to be one of my three things I'm taking away from, but like you've got five or six tight ends and you look at all of them and they fit at least the physical attributes of what you want at a tight end. They're all like 6'4 to 6'6 and 245 to 260 pounds and you watch them in drills and they're all impressive. So uh, the depth, the talent of this team, you're right. I think that's an important thing to acknowledge of like, I don't think there's a single position on the roster where I go like, boy, they are hosed if they lose X, Y, or Z to injury. I think they have the bodies and the talent this year to to withstand that. If And again, knocking on wood because no one wants injuries, but if something like that happens, I think they're pretty well equipped to deal with it. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. And this is the time of year in which there is so much to go forward and talk about because spring football is going on, men's basketball is going on, women's basketball is going on, softball has started, baseball has started, track and field, I believe, has started. Uh, everything is almost going on at the exact same time right now. And it's carrying, you know, there's just so much to discuss. And we're, we're not going to be able to get to everything. But Eric and I do want to talk about the basketball teams and the success that they've had the last week. Let's go with the women first. They go to Vegas, and I don't, Eric, I don't know if there's no surprise. Oregon won the Pac-12 tournament. They beat Stanford in the championship game. I don't think anyone was really shocked by the final result of a victory for Oregon in this scenario. But the fact that they won their first game by 18, there's 20 points. They won their second game by 18 points. And then in a championship game, playing a, a top 10 team, playing an opponent that honestly has been the standard in, in this league for, for so, for so long. And Oregon beats them by 33 points. And basically, I think cements themselves as they're not going to be, they might not be ranked number one when the polls come out for the, Final poll of the regular season, but they are the best team in the in the country, and it's not even close. I've been I've been feeling that way for a long time, and and nothing I saw this past weekend leads me to believe anything different. Um, it's funny they went you read through the scores twenty eighteen thirty three. I, I think until Sunday, uh, if you were to ask Coach Graves, I think people did. He said this like they weren't quite playing their best basketball. U- Utah and Arizona kind of both challenged Oregon probably a little bit more than they had expected. 
But Sunday's game was a masterclass, and this is exactly why this team is the best team in the country. I think in both of our minds of, like, they trail after one quarter, and Sabrina says, ah, this ain't happening. And she goes out and scores 15 points in the second quarter, completely takes the game over. Oregon outscores Stanford 29-9 in that quarter. And I don't want to say that's where the game ends because they still had a full half to play in the second and had to play well there, and they did. But that really sets the tone. And when you have a player who's capable of, you know, Sabrina doesn't score in the first quarter. I think she take, took one shot, maybe two shots in the entire first quarter. Second quarter, she comes out and scores 15. When you have a player who's capable of doing things like that, it's really, really hard to beat a team like Oregon because what are you going to do? You can't stop her. And when you have a player like Mignon Moore who is not known to be really much of any offensive threat, at least not at her time in Oregon, you know, she averaged decent scoring numbers uh, at USC. Uh, but when she can go for 21 points like that, like, yeah, look out. I mean, once she started hitting threes, it was like, okay, Stanford's hosed. Like, what are they going to do here? I mean, how are they going to defend this team? And Oregon wins by 33, and Satu Sabli probably has her worst individual game of the season. She scores seven points. She's three for 11, 0 for 5 from three, but it doesn't really matter. Um, throughout this turn, I thought throughout the Pac-12 tournament, you saw basically every piece of this uh, Oregon offense play at a high level. You had Aaron Boley, you know, against Arizona, catch fire and hit a bunch of threes. Obviously, the big three each had their moments. I thought Satu probably had one of her weaker three-game stretches or weekends of the season. But you had Jazz Shelley get hot in the game. You had Taylor Chavez hit some big shots. Um, Lydia Giomi had some moments, at least running the floor and being competitive. But overall, I think you see why I agree with you in terms of, like, this is this is the best team in the country. They're not going to play for another couple of weeks here because they do have a week off, um, which I think I'm sure they're excited about. But when they get into the NCAA tournament here, I think you're going to hear a lot of people nationally echoing what we're saying, that Oregon should be the front runner, should be the favorite as we get into this. And with Baylor losing this you know, this past weekend in its conference tournament uh, and South Carolina winning its, I think it, to me it feels more and more like a, a two-team race. And I don't want to overlook Baylor, the defending champions. I think that's going to be a tough game, and that'll probably be Oregon's Final Four matchup. But I really think it's Oregon-South Carolina, and I, I would be – I would I would take Oregon in that game. I think you have to probably spend a little more time looking at South Carolina. I know defensively they're good. I know they've got great depth, but I know they don't have a player as good as Sabrina, and they probably don't have a player as good as Satu Sabali or Ruthie Hebert either. I remember middle 2000s, UConn's women's basketball program. They were destroying everybody. It didn't, you know, there was it, it was a shock if the game was less than 15 points. And this has that same type of a feel where it doesn't matter who they're playing, Oregon is going to win, and they're going to win by a lot. This is their 19th straight game. It's the second longest winning streak in program history, which was 21. And get this. And during this win streak, Oregon is outscoring their opponents 25 in, by 25.5 points per game, and they've played 11 teams out of those 19 that are ranked. And the, the wins over ranked opponents, the, they're outscoring them by 19 and a half points. So nearly 20 points is the difference for Oregon against a ranked team. And as crazy as it sounds, probably half of those 11 games are against top 10 teams. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, it, it, you, you can't help but be impressed with what they're doing. And, and they've done, they've answered the call. I think that's the thing is they've answered every single test. You know, they lost that game to Arizona State back in mid-January. And ever since then, you're right. They've played everybody they could. They've played UConn. They've played all of these other teams in the conference that are in the top 10, top 15, top 20, wherever they're ranked. 
and they've handled business. And they've been challenged here and there in varying degrees, but there really hasn't been a game since that Arizona State game where it's come down to the final couple minutes. And maybe that's something that you are a little concerned about in terms of this run. And maybe that is the one thing, is like, which is crazy to say, but they haven't had to play a game that's come down to the final minute really since Arizona State, and before that it was Louisville. And those are the only two games really all season that have come down to that. You know, they've got a couple games in Pacto plays that have been determined by 10 points, but those are all games they were up by 15 to 20 points earlier in the fourth or third quarter, and the game kind of tightened up late a little bit with uh, the other team hitting some shots. I mean, they really haven't been challenged in the fourth quarter in a very long time. So that speaks to a couple things. I think obviously, A, how dominant they have been, how much they're firing on all cylinders on both offense and defense. I think the defensive thing maybe gets overlooked. But then also B of like, maybe that's something that you have to be kind of cognizant of, of when they do get to the Elite Eight in the Final Four and, and, and potentially a national championship game of when they do play some teams that are a little bit more competitive. And I don't think there are that many teams in the country capable of being that competitive with Oregon, probably outside of South Carolina or Baylor and possibly Maryland, who's gotten really hot recently. Um, but maybe those teams will challenge them, and maybe those situations will be something that they haven't had to deal with recently, and that could be a problem. But other than that, I have a hard time finding something to really nitpick and be too concerned about. I think this team has everything it takes to win a national championship. All right, what's on the table in the next week or so? What, what, where, what, what's the program have right now? Well, they're going to have a week off, which is something, obviously, that they want and that they need. And then they have the I, – I like this a little bit. Because on the men's side, you finish your conference tournaments, and then like three hours later, it's the selection show. There's no time to breathe and really kind of appreciate what's taking place. The women give you a week. Their selection show is next Monday. Uh, Monday, I believe that is the 16th uh, at 4 p.m. I think Oregon typically has hosted uh, a watch party at Matthew Knight Arena. I, I, maybe the coronavirus scare is the only thing that would change that, but I, I would expect you're going to have thousands of people at Matthew Knight Arena in about a week sitting, waiting, and, and, and watching Oregon uh, learn its seed line. I think we all expect it will be the number one seed in Portland. I think anything other than that would be stunning at this point. Um, but that, that's what we're going to expect. But that's really it right now in terms of, of that uh, the next thing on the docket for them. I, you know, Last year it was notable that they were low on bodies and they really needed this week. I think this year, of course, they're going to take the rest in the week. They haven't had a week off in, a really, like, in months and months and months, but – at the same time, I think if you ask them, I think a lot of these players would love to just keep playing because they have so much momentum. But uh, they're going to have to wait to learn their seed lines on the 16th. And then from there, uh, they will play two games in Eugene. It's not official, but it's basically official. Two games in Eugene. Uh, that following weekend, either Thursday, Saturday, Friday, Sunday, uh, we'll have more information on that once that all comes together. But, yeah, that's the next thing. You got a little bit of a break in terms of game action. We'll continue to cover and write stories, uh, you know, kind of an a- analyzing where this team is at. Uh, but, yeah, they don't play again uh, for – they're going to have probably about a 10-day break here, which I'm sure uh, they will appreciate. Now, from the men's perspective, they had, for the first chance since 1945, an opportunity to win a conference title outright on their home floor and have the opportunity to cut nets. And the – I guess drama of the day going into Saturday kind of took a hit because UCLA lost at USC on a buzzer beater. Jonah Matthews of the Trojans hit a three-pointer with like one second left to win the game. And with UCLA losing, that automatically clinched Oregon uh, at worst to share the Pac-12 title. So all that Oregon had to all that Oregon knew going into their final game of the year, which was also the last game of the regular season in the Pac-12 
was beat Stanford. The title is yours outright. If you if you lose to Stanford, you still share the title. You still get the number one seed. Oregon does go out and they they basically I want to say blow out Stanford. It, it was a game in which there was never really a doubt in anyone's mind who was going to win this game. Oregon walks out with uh, a strong victory. All three seniors play incredibly well. Uh, Pritchard had yet again another good game, and, and Oregon wins 80 to 67. Uh, a game in which Pritchard scored 29 points. He had a, a chant where he walks off the court with 18 seconds left with the crowd chanting MVP. Pritchard added, so cool. Mathis added 14. Richardson had 12. Patterson had nine. Dante had, I think, six. Um, just overall really good basketball for the Ducks, and they clinch the number one seed. They win the regular season outright title. Uh, it's their seventh title since 1919, 1939, 45, 2002, 2016, and 2017. And I think it basically, I mean, there was no doubt, but it, it basically cemented Pritchard as well as the Paxwell Player of the Year. That will come out later on Monday after we're recording this podcast, but uh, you can already etch his name. He's going to win the award. I was going to say, we're recording this podcast before it's announced, but we can probably safely discuss the merits of him winning the conference player of the year because that's something he's going to win, and it's very deserving. Uh, I don't even understand an argument against him unless it's one of those. <laughs> there really isn't one. I mean, unless it's literally the coaches sabotaging, like what we saw happen with the football team uh, this off, you know, this past year because, like, what Oregon wins the conference, Pritchard leads the conference in scoring and assists. Like, okay, let's let's try, come up with an argument against him. Uh, we should note here, just really quick. I don't think we've said it, but Oregon has now become the first team in Pac-12 history to win a Pac-12 conference football championship, men's basketball championship, and women's uh, championship in the same year. Uh, a really special year for for the Oregon athletic department as a whole. Those are the three, you know, the three. Major sports, if you will. I know you got baseball and softball upcoming still, uh, which are significant too, but uh, it's something that had never happened in the conference's history. I think we talked about this during the summer or maybe the fall of like this is something that could happen. Oregon was the favorite uh, to win all three of them. I, I think obviously the, Utah was the favorite overall in the conference, but Oregon was the favorite in the North in football, but they were able to follow through with it in all three sports, and that's pretty special. It's really been a special year um, for the program. Now, and in terms of this team, Matt, winners of four straight going into the Pac-12 tournament, winners of six out of seven going into the Pac-12 tournament. Are they playing at their best level of, of this season, or is this sort of like a byproduct of they played almost every one of those games at Matthew Knight Arena? Like, what, what's your confidence level right now? Are you feeling pretty good about where they're playing, or do you feel like heading into Vegas there's still some things that need to be answered? Yeah, I, I, I feel pretty good. Um, this is a team in which – they have won three, four straight, excuse me, four straight games. Their last three, albeit at home and against the bottom half, teams from the bottom half of the conference. But they beat Oregon State by 15 points. They beat California by 34 points. And then they beat Stanford by 13 points. They have a win at Arizona. They have won seven out of their last eight games. I believe that's right. No, six out of their last seven, excuse me. Six out of their last seven, they've, they've played really well and won. 
Their one game is a loss at Oregon, at Arizona State, in which they lost 77 to 72. And if I'm being honest, like they lost that game, but they lost by five and they played maybe one of their worst, you know, games of, of basketball of the year. And they could have easily won it too had Pritchard not fouled out, which was just a horrible game by him. Um, they're playing their best basketball. And I think, What's pretty remarkable here is the last three have come without Chris Duarte, and quite honestly, the defense hasn't really dropped off. That's been pretty impressive to watch, to see how they lose their best on-ball defender, and I think they've been able to make up for it. They've also been able to develop a couple guys into some bigger roles. Addison Patterson in particular has really come on strong the last couple of weeks for Oregon. Just look at his last few games. And he scored nine points, two steals. He hit two three-pointers against Stanford. He had 13 points, two steals uh, against California. Against the Beavers, he had four, but he had three assists. And uh, he was all over defensively. Against ASU, he had eight points and a couple steals and had six rebounds. And then against uh, Utah, he was all over the place again with, with 10 points. I think he's really kind of starting to find his niche and finding how he can make an impact on this team. And the biggest development, though, is I think in Fale Dante, the freshman center, looked like the guy we were more like the guy we were all expecting he would look like when he showed up than he has at any point this season, especially against Stanford. He had eight points, four rebounds, two steals. He had one assist against the Cardinal. He played 16 minutes. It's the Fourth most minutes he's played. It's the most since he played 18 against Arizona State at Mathenat Arena in, in mid-January. His stat line in, in 27 minutes of play this weekend, he was 7 of 9 from the field. He had 7 rebounds, 2 assists, 1 block, 2 steals, 1 turnover, 14 points. If if, if Oregon's going to get that out of him over a two-game stretch every time, this team could go to a whole other level because – I said it on the last podcast, and I'm going to say it now. Stanford doubled, you know, Stanford doubled him and immediately doubled him when he got the basketball. And everyone collapses on him because he's so big, he's so long, and so athletic that they know if he gets close to the rim, he's going to score. And Stanford immediately double teamed. And that was, the thing that impressed me the most was how was he able to handle that? And it was impressive. He quickly got the ball out, he made the right pass. He dribbled out of it and, and, and killed Stanford for doubling him. And if he can do that against better competition, this team goes up a whole nother level. I thought, I thought it was really notable that Altman ran him out there at the end of the game and, and let him get kind of crunch time minutes, uh, in a game that, like you said, wasn't extreme, but a game at points there in the last minute, even, uh, the score was under 10 points. Uh, the fact that he was out there for, for a lot of the final four or five minutes of the game, I thought was, important for experience for him and also showed a little bit of trust from Altman to help close that game out. And I think that's, I'm sure Dana is feeling like we need to get him ready. There are going to be games this season, possibly this next week here down in Las Vegas, where maybe the game won't be determined by Enfali Dante, but that he could play a significant role uh, in, in winning basketball games. And, and you're right. I think seeing him here this last weekend play at such a high level, but finally seeing that potential uh, it has to be extremely encouraging, especially with 
Chris Duarte's injury and, and, and that, which was kind of devastating to, to have a player. I, I know they don't play the same position, but to have another player step up and be able to contribute. Obviously, we've also seen that from Addison Patterson, another player that has really imp- impressed. You mentioned that earlier. Good to see some of these players step up. Matt, we have a bracket. We, yeah. have, we have a pac tournament bracket. Let's run through this really quick here. I know we've been talking for a while, but uh, you're going to be heading down there. Well, by the time some people are listening to this, you might actually be in Las Vegas um, because you're heading down there pretty quickly. You look at this bracket, and Oregon is the one seed, uh, UCLA the two, Arizona State the three. The four seed, USC, they kind of snuck up there. Um, Oregon will play the winner of Oregon State, Utah on Thursday at noon. Uh, what do you think, A, of that quarterfinal draw with the Beavers and the Utes, possibly, and then the rest of that kind of part of the bracket there with USC, Arizona, and Washington possibly being uh, available for a semifinal? Yeah, Oregon will play Thursday at noon on Pac-12 Networks against the winner of the Beavers and, and the Utes. If I'm Oregon, I want Utah, not Oregon State. I, I think they'll beat both teams. But I, I think Oregon State will make it tougher on Oregon than it needs to be in the first round type of a game. Utah just doesn't have the athletes to hang with Oregon. Oregon State, they've got a, a really good shot blocker. They've got a really good overall player in Trace Tinkle. And then Ethan Thompson has been one of the better players against guarding Peyton Pritchard. Now, most have not fared very well against it, um, against him, but for the most part, Thompson is one of the better players to have success against Pritchard. So I wouldn't want to play Oregon State. I don't think either team's going to beat Oregon. But like I said, it could make Oregon have to play harder for longer periods of, of, of the game than it should if they play the Beavers. So if, if you're an Oregon fan, who do you root for? You want Utah to win that game. Now, the next part of the bracket, if Oregon does play Utah and does advance – the next part of who they play is probably almost a worst case scenario here because agreed, yeah. Because <laughs> if you play the four seed USC, remember this is a team that Oregon played in, in what double overtime and they won at home. They won meeting. I think Dan Altman is a significantly better coach than Andy Enfield, but the Trojans have really good talent. They have guys that have had big games against Oregon. They have really good post players. They have a lot of size. That's always going to be something that you're worried about. Arizona's Arizona. If they play at their best, they are going to be one of the toughest teams. Oregon's played them twice. They've won both games by a combined two points and both games coming in overtime, and it's been very difficult. I would not want to play Arizona because their fan base comes north uh, in huge droves to, to Las Vegas, and that will be like a road game atmosphere. And then Washington, as we've seen, they went down and they upset ASU, and then they went down and they upset Arizona. And while they are the 12 seed, they're not your typical 12. They have two lottery picks, both of them big guys. Isaiah Stewart's going to be a first-team all-pack 12 player. He's going to be a first-round draft pick. Jaden McDaniels, I'm not as high as him, but all the box still have him as a first-round draft pick. They play a funky defense, and we know how that game went up in Seattle. I mean, Oregon won, but it – was another overtime game in which Oregon played horrible for 30 minutes of that game. So I think if Oregon emerges out of that semifinal game on Friday, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, but we can. But if they emerge out of that out of that game, whoever they play, I think they're going to win the tournament because that's a 
those are the three probably the toughest matchups that Oregon could play this season in the tournament. And if you get out of that, you match up really well with everyone, anyone that's left. The crazy stat about those three teams, Oregon is 4-0 against USC, Arizona, and Washington. All four games were won in overtime. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that tells you, like, these are going to be competitive games. And that is, yeah, you're right. I, it was funny. I was looking at the draw there going like, oh, wow, those are none of those teams are optimal. Like, that's not who you want to be facing. But uh, it kind of is the situation it is. And, and here's a question for you, Matt. Let's let's say they do get past Oregon State or Utah on Thursday. Uh would it be a worst case scenario for them to slip up on Friday and maybe have a, a day off, you know, in terms of resting? Or for you, is this like pedal to the metal? You want to get the best seed possible. There's still a possibility of improving your seed standing. I know right now most mocks have them, uh, or most bracketology uh, predictions have them as a four seed somewhere in terms of regions. But do you think there is enough upward mobility to possibly get to a three seed that makes it? Like imperative they win this weekend, or are you kind of going into this going like, hey, if they get to the semifinals and they lose to an Arizona who's a good net ranking team, uh, that won't be like worst case scenario. I completely understand what you're bringing up. I just think Oregon has an opportunity to get a three seed, and with San Diego State losing and their conference tournament. It has now opened the door for them to drop to a two seed. And, you know, you look at Jerry Palm's CBS Sports' latest bracketology update, he does have San Diego State as a two seed in the West. And I look at this as I want to be the three seed in the West region. Oregon's currently the four. The number three is Seton Hall. Because I want to play San Diego State in the second, in the, in the Sweet 16, and then I want to play a, a Gonzaga in the one seed. And I understand Gonzaga beat Oregon, and I understand Gonzaga is always viewed as a really good team, but I look at this as, if I have to go through, let's just say, Hofstra in the first round, because that's who Seton Hall is playing in the, in, in the West, and then I have to beat a BYU team or, the winner of a 6-11 game out west, which uh, includes UCLA and Rutgers, and then beat a San Diego State team, and then beat a Gonzaga team, you could potentially be playing one Power 5 conference team out of all of that to make it to the Final Four. And call me elitist, call me whatever, I will always believe the Power 5 conferences are better teams than the mid-majors. I mean, we've not seen a Gonzaga win a championship. We've not seen I – mean, when's the last time a Mountain West team has won a championship? When is the last time a team like Dayton from the Atlantic 10 has won a championship? The, the champions come from the power conferences almost every year. And if, if I'm Oregon and if, I, if I'm told, hey, all your top teams in your conference or in your region are – champions of mid-major schools or low-major programs, sign me up because I will I will take the test that we are more battle-tested than they are and we have played tougher competition and we will win we will win those games. And so for if I'm Morgan, I want to win the conference tournament because you want to get to that three seed line and you want to get away from having to play Gonzaga in the Sweet 16. I'd rather play them in the Elite Eight. When they're tired, they played another really good team the week before, you know, you know, two days before that. So the answer to your question, long-winded, short answer here, give me the title because I think Oregon's ceiling is 
is where they they could get to a three seed. And who knows? I mean, maybe if some crazy upsets happen, maybe they find themselves as a two seed. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily ruled out yet for Oregon. It's probably not likely, but I don't think it's out of the picture yet. Two thoughts on that. Eight. Hey, how dare you drag Gonzaga with when you're speaking with a Gonzaga alum, Matt? Come on, no, know, know, know your audience here. Uh, and then the second thought, like, or you're, I think you're totally spot on as well. And I was kind of playing devil's advocate with the question, but like, you look at the NCAA tournament field, and just like the Pac-12 tournament field, where it feels sort of pretty wide open, like a bunch of teams could win. I think the NCAA tournament's that this year. There's to me not a dominant team, and you're right. If Oregon just lucks out with the right matchups. You could see this team make a run, and and, and Peyton Pritchard's probably going to be the best player on the court yeah. almost every game. And yes. you have that advantage. And we this could this feels like I, I kind of this is a weird comparison, but about a decade ago when Kemba Walker led UConn to a national championship, it was another year where the the champ the, the, there wasn't really a field of like three or four teams that were clearly better than everybody else. It's kind of an open field like this year, and they just happened to have the best player in the country on their team and he had the ball the most and he just had a crazy tournament and they won a national championship. I'm not saying Peyton Pritchard's Kemba Walker and that's what's going to happen, but like I, I wouldn't be like super stunned if Pritchard has an awesome NCAA tournament and you look up and he leads Oregon a lot further than a lot of people think uh, that they would maybe be expected to go in the tournament just because he's that special of a player and the field feels a little bit watered down this year. See, I'm, I'm 100% with you. And that's exactly the comparison I think that this team has is I don't know if people realize this, but Oregon has three of the four best three-point shooters in the Pac-12. They have the two leading ones, Will Richardson and Anthony Mathis, and then Pritchard is fourth. This team has the ability to score the basketball from three and do it in an impressive fashion. They've been able to defend their, their defense has improved they have the depth they have the best player on the floor almost any night and then on top of that I look at Oregon just in the look let's look at the net okay the net rankings and who they have played and their record in the top 30 is really really impressive they are seven and two excuse me, seven and three against top 30 teams in the net ranking. And I understand the net's not the most perfect example, but when I say they have a chance at a two seed, yes, there are teams who have, I want to say, nine, 10, 12, 13 quad one wins. But how many of those were against teams that are 50 to 75 and they were road wins? Whereas Oregon is, has... Seven quad one wins. They have eight total. Seven of them have come against teams inside the top 30 of the net ranking. That's they, They've played a really tough, tough non-conference schedule, a, a regular schedule, and they've won a ton of big games. And now I, I, I really think they're sitting in the weeds, and they are they are in a position to make a really big run in March. And it starts with a strong conference tournament with – you know, them kind of extending this good play for another week. All right. That's going to do it for us on the Austin Audible's podcast. This was a much longer podcast than we were expecting. It's an hour long. So hopefully you guys enjoy the longer one. Stick with us on DuckTerritory.com for our coverage of all spring football and then Vegas for the Pac-12 tournament for the men, the NCAA tournament for both the men and the women. 
and recruiting is in full gear as well. So if, if you're not on DuckTerritory.com, you need to be on it because there's literally something new every single day. So for Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Prem, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos. CBS Friday, TV's hottest show is Fire Country. I'm not a hero. I'm in orange for a reason. They're taking 12 months off your sentence. You're free. Lady. With a special epic season finale. Now that I'm out, I need something to get me up in the morning. You are a firefighter. You speak. That will be unforgettable. In the name of your life's happiness, go get your girl. She's getting married tomorrow. Says, when do you let anything get in the way of what you want? The Fire Country season finale, Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.